Chapter Seven of Janet of the Dunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter Seven. Late August hung heavily over Quinton. The city folks who counted their year's playtime by two weeks' vacation had come and gone in relays. The artists, never tiring of the changing charms of this new-found beauty spot, gave no heed to the passing season. Only cold and acute bodily suffering could attract their attention. Good, poor, and indifferent reveled in the inspiration-haunted hills and magnificent sweep of shore. The natives counted their gains with bated breath and dreamed visions of future summers that made them dizzy. Poor Susan Jane was the only woman, apparently, upon the mainland who had swung at anchor through all the changed conditions. Susan, who once had been the ruling spirit of the village and station. Susan, whose sharp tongue and all-seeing eye had governed her kind. Susan had been obliged to gather such bits of driftwood as had floated to her chair during the history-making season and draw such pleasure from it as she could. The strain had worn upon the paralyzed body. The active mind had stretched and stretched for material until the helpless frame weakened. The sharp tongue was two-edged now, and gossip that reached Susan Jane assumed the blackest color. Her searching eyes saw through everything and gripped all secrets. David's songs, as he mounted the winding stairs, took on a soberer strain, Sometimes he omitted, even at the top, his hilarious outburst to the lobster pots, and his sigh-and-laugh combination was an hourly occurrence. Janet noticed it all. She was alive to the atmospheric chill of the village, though in no wise understanding it. She was troubled and fretted by many things, but she went her way. The money she had earned by posing she dealt out in miserly fashion to Susan Jane, while at the same time she assumed many household cares to ease David, whom she loved. There was no more money coming to her now, for after the scene in the hut upon the hills Thornley had gone away for a week, and upon his return he had told Janet he would send her a message when again he needed her. The man's tone had been most kindly, but it seemed a rebuff from which the girl had not been able to recover. Once or twice she had stolen to the hut, when she was sure the master was away. Always the key was in its hiding place. Softly she had gone in and stood in the sacred room. The same picture stood ever upon the easel, the same beautiful, unfinished picture. Upon one visit, the girl had taken a rare pimpernel blossom she had found in a lonely hollow and laid it on the empty stool before the canvas. It was still there when she went again. Faded and neglected it lay before the shrine, and the message never came that was to call her to the hills. The people of the village, too, were different. They were busy and took small notice of the girl. Business, Janet thought, was the only reason. Mrs. Joe G. in particular was changed, but it had been a hard summer for Mrs. Joe G., 
and when, after many attempts to secure Janet as waitress, she had failed, she turned upon the girl sharply. "'You might be doing worse things,' she snapped. "'You're growing more and more like your ma. "'And it ain't to your credit.' That was the first inroad the oncoming wave of sentiment had made in the bulkhead of local reticence. Janet started. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'What I say. "'And what's more, Janet, "'if you can't turn in and be useful to them "'as was good enough for you before,' You can stop away from us altogether. I don't want Maud Grace to get any fool notions in her head. Once Janet would have turned upon such an attack, but somehow the spring of resistance was checked. After all, what did it matter? But she took her mother's picture from the carpet-bag that night and hid it in her blouse with the long silent whistle. More and more she remained at the lighthouse. Seldom, even, did she sail over to the dunes, and never unless she felt strong enough to leave a pleasant impression upon Billy. Over all this, Mark Tapkins watched and brooded, and he slouched more dejectedly between the light and his father's little home. "'I tell you,' he often confided to his inner self, "'city life is blightin'. When I was there, it took the breath out of me, and now it's come to Quinton. It's knocked a good many different from what they once was. With this oft-repeated sentiment, Mark reached his father's door one day, and through it caught the smell of frying crullers. Old Pa Tapkins was realizing his harvest from the borders by acting upon Janet's suggestion to Mark. From early sunrise until the going down of the sun, Pa when not necessarily preparing food for three regular meals, was mixing, shaping, frying, and selling his now-famous cakes. People, in passing, inhaled the fragrance of Pa's cooking and stopped to regale themselves and take samples to friends who were yet to be initiated. Pa and his crullers were becoming bywords, and they often helped out where meals at the boarding-place failed and conversation lacked humor. As Mark stepped into the kitchen, not only his father, but Captain Billy hailed him. "'Hello, Captain Billy,' cried Mark. "'Come off for a change, have you?' "'Yes, yes,' Billy replied through a mouthful of cruller, hot enough to make an ordinary man groan with pain." "'Yes, yes, I've come off to see the doings.' "'Well, there is considerable goings-on,' Mark nodded, and calmly helped himself to a cake that was still sizzling. "'There don't seem to be no signs of letting up on us.' "'Now, Marky,' purred Pa from the stove, "'that ain't putting the case just as it is. "'Looked at from some points, we are the clutchers.' Pa was a mild little man with a round, innocent face and flaxen hair rising in a curly halo about it. His china-blue eyes had all the trust and surprise of a newly awakened baby. Life had always been to Pa Tapkins a mild series of shocks, and he parried each statement and circumstance in order that he might haply recognize it if he ran across it again, or, more properly speaking, 
if it struck him a smarting blow again. Pa never ran at all. As nearly as any mortal can be stationary, Pa was. But in the nature of things, passing events touched him more or less sharply in their progress. It ain't all their doings, Marky, now, is it? Like as not it ain't, Pa. Sold many crullers today? I've sold all I've made up to this batch, Marky, and I've been puttering over the heat since the morning meal. Well, I'll lay the things on for the noon meal, Pa. You tend to business. But you ain't slept, Marky. Up all night and no sleep next day? T'won't do, Marky. Now will it? I'll sleep come night time. Mark seized his third almost boiling cruller and turned to Billy. You ain't seen Janet, have you? Billy looked guilty. No, and I ain't a-going to this trip. Mark, how is things at the light? Squally as to Susan Jane. Seein' others spry while she's chained by the stroke ain't haddin' to Susan Jane's Christian qualities. Stormin' at Janet? Janet comes in for her share, but David gets the toughest blasts. I don't see how Davy weathers it and still keeps a song and a smile. And him doing another man's stint, too, Pa put in, dropping a brown ring on the floor, spearing it adroitly again, and flipping it upon the paper-covered platter. If William Henry Jones hadn't gone down in that squall thirty years ago, and if Davy hadn't thought it was his duty to carry out his mate's plans, I'm thinking Susan Jane might have been different, and Davy might not have had such tormentin' experiences. Least that is how it struck me thirty years back, and it strikes me so yet. Billy nodded appreciatively. "'Tain't always wise to tackle somebody else's job,' Mark joined in. "'That's what come to me in the city. City jobs ain't for you, that's what I said to myself. Salt air was in my nostrils, the sound of the sea in my ears, and I couldn't any more hear to the teaching of city ways than the city folks can learn of us here on the coast.' Again Billy nodded. He felt his spirits rising, as he looked upon this man of the world and knew him as a friend. "'Draw up, Pa and Cap'n Billy,' Mark had collected a large and varied repast. "'Have some cold fowl, Cap'n, and a couple of taters. Lay hold of a brace of them ears of corn. Over half a yard long and as near black as purple ever is. Inside they're white and milky enough.' Have some blackberry pie, long with your fowl, Cap'n. Tain't every day you can get Pa's cookin', and I believe in mixin' good vittles. It's what Nader does. Billy took everything suggested and ate it indiscriminately, and this example was ably followed by his hosts. Mark! Billy, after a long but significant silence, sat back in his chair and wiped his mouth on the back of his hand. "'Mark, I'm going to ask you to join me in a rather shady job. Do you happen to know the particular women painters as is using Janet for a model?' 
Mark strangled over a kernel of corn and stared, teary-eyed, at Billy. "'Model?' he finally gasped. "'Model? Why, Captain, that ain't no word to tack on to Janet. Models ain't moral or decent. I learned that in the city from a painter chap as used to come into the shop and eat oysters when he could afford it. Billy's face lengthened. "'Tis mung friends I speak?' Billy dropped his voice. Both men nodded. "'Well, Janet is a model to some of them dirty-aproned women painters, and I want to see just how they've took her and what they calculate to do with the picture. Andrew Farley has been modeling for them, and Andy's count of how he looks in paint ain't pleasant. I don't know as I want Janet showing up in the city kind of unsightly.' During this explanation, Mark's countenance had assumed an expression of intense suffering. Bits of gossip arose like channel stakes in the troubled water of his misery. Like the bits of red cloth which marked the states in the bay, Susan Jane's emphasis of such gossip fluttered wildly in this hour. Through the channel, clearly set by these signals, was a wide course leading direct to a certain hut upon the hills of which silent, watchful Mark knew. "'She ain't no model, Captain. Don't say that,' he finally managed to get out. "'That's just scandalous gossip.' "'She told me herself,' Billy brought his tilted chair to the floor. "'And I got to keep this visit secret. But since the gal ain't got no mother,' I've got to do double duty. Knowin' how up in city ways you are, Mark, I thought maybe you'd pilot me on this trip. I'm terrible clumsy with strangers, especially women, and I want to do what's right. Taint a woman. This declaration was wrung from Mark. What's that? Billy sprang from his chair. Now, Marky, do be careful cautioned Pa. Don't make no statement you can't stand by. Nation, that fat is burnin'. I said twarn't no woman painter has done, Janet. If she has been a model, and twar you has said that, she's been one to a man. The horror on Billy's face was pitiful. Can you locate him? he asked in trembling tones. Mark nodded. "'Come on, then.' In silence the two departed. Pa hardly noticed them. The burning fat claimed his entire attention. Mark strode ahead toward the hills, and Billy, with the swing of the lonely patrols, brought up the rear. It was the dining hour, and Quinton was almost deserted in the hot August noon. "'Don't let's get hit up,' advised Mark presently. City folks is powerful clever about keepin' cool inside and out. I'm already het, panted Billy. Let's take it easier. Mark paused in the path and wiped his streaming face. They did not speak again until Thornley's hut was almost at their feet. Billy's face was grim and threatening, but Mark's showed signs of doubt and wavering. His recollections of city calm and coolness were not uplifting in this emergency. 
Folks in town had always outwitted Mark by their calmness. Thornley's door was set open to strangers and whatever air was stirring. He, himself, was sitting inside, his back to his coming guests and his eyes upon the unfinished picture upon the easel. Remnants of a chafing-dish meal were spread upon a small table, and silence brooded over all. It was only when Mark and Billy stood at the door that Thornley turned. The look of expectancy died in his eyes as he saw the weather-beaten countenance of Billy and the shame-faced features of Mark. "'I do not want any sitters, thank you,' said he. "'We don't want to sit,' Billy replied firmly and clearly. "'I beg your pardon,' Thornley smiled pleasantly. "'You see, nearly all of them do. Won't you come in?' "'It's cooler outside,' ventured Mark. "'There isn't much difference,' said Thornley, rising courteously. "'I'm Captain Billy Morgan.' This statement appeared to interest Thornley immensely. "'I'm glad to meet you,' he answered. "'Are ye a painter-man?' asked Billy. "'I've been dubbed that occasionally,' Thornley laughed. What can I do for you? Did you ever have a model? Mark broke in breathlessly, feeling he must help Billy out, no matter what his own feelings were. I've even been guilty of that. Did ye ever have my Janet? Poor Billy's trouble, knowing no restraint of city ways or roundabout methods, rushed forth sharply. Thornley changed color perceptibly. "'Come in,' he urged. "'The glare is really too painful.' The two awkwardly stepped inside. Then Mark's eyes fell upon the canvas. "'Cap'n,' he groaned, "'look at this.' The two men stood spellbound before the easel, and Thornley watched them curiously. "'It's her,' muttered Billy. "'It's her! Poor little thing!' She's just drifted without a hand upon the tiller. The visitors forgot Thornley. I didn't think I had more'n the right to watch, Captain. Mark's voice was full of tears as he said this. You had the right to shout out a call to me, lad. You'd have done the like for any little skiff you'd seen in danger. Then he turned upon Thornley. What right have you got to steal my gal's looks? And what tricks have you used to get him and her happiness long with him? Thornley winced. Her happiness? he asked helplessly, not knowing what else to say. Yes, her happiness. Don't you suppose that I, what has watched her since she came into port, watched her and loved her and sought hopes on her, don't you think I know the difference twixt her happiness and the sham thing? "'Good Lord!' breathed Thornley. "'Are you speaking truth?' Billy drew himself up with a dignity Thornley shrank before. "'There ain't anything but the truth good enough to use when we're talking to my little gal,' he said quietly. He felt no need of Mark nor knowledge of city ways. Mark was still riveted before the picture. Slow tears were rolling down his twitching face. 
The calamity that had overtaken Janet was like death, and this lovely smiling face upon the canvas was but the dear memory of her. "'I never meant to harm her,' said Thornley presently. "'I cannot hope that you will understand. It has only recently come to me, the understanding. I have always thought the artist in me had a right to seize and make my own all that my eyes saw that was beautiful. Lately the man in me has uprisen and shown me that I have been a fool, a fool and a thief. "'That's what you are,' blubbered Mark. "'That lasts what you are. You've taken Janet's good name, you've taken her happiness, and you've taken her from us.' Thornley's color rose, but a look at the speaker's distorted face hushed the angry words that he was about to utter. He turned to Billy as to an equal. "'Captain Morgan,' he said quietly, "'I have done nothing to harm your daughter's good name in the eyes of any man or woman. That I swear before God. In that I yearn to make her wonderful beauty add to my reputation, I plead my blind selfishness.' But, above all, I wanted to give to the world a pleasure that you can never realize, I think. And I believe your daughter is great enough to give all that I ruthlessly took without asking to help me give the world that picture. His own eyes turned to the pure, exquisite face. Like as not, she would, Billy replied. Like as not, she would. Was there ever a woman as wasn't willin' to fling herself away if a man was reckless enough to point the path out to her? And do you think I'm going to let you take my Janet's dear face into that hell place of a city and have folks staring at her, folks what ain't fit to raise their eyes to her? Ain't you done her enough wrong without taking her sacrifice if she's willin' to make it? Good God, man, I'm willing to do all I can. That picture is worth hundreds of dollars to me, and untold pleasure to many besides. But I am willing to do with it just what you think best. Then cut it open, Mark. Billy's tones rose shrilly. Slash it top and bottom, and don't leave a trace of Janet. Mark drew from his pocket a huge clasp knife. He trembled as he opened it and stood back to strike the first blow. "'Stop!' Thornley sprang between him and the canvas. "'Stop! I could easier see some savage devastate the beauty of these hills. Wait! I swear to leave it as it is. I swear that no eyes but ours shall rest upon it, but you shall not destroy it.' Command and power rang in Thornley's voice. Mark wavered. Billy hung his head. "'After all,' he groaned, "'we ain't none of us got the final right. "'Janet's my gal, but her beauty is hers and God Almighty's. "'Keep the picture till such time as my Janet can judge and say. "'The time will come when she'll get her bearings with full instructions, "'and then she'll judge among us all.' "'The two rough men turned toward the door. "'When she tells you,' Billy paused to say, "'She'll be wiser than what she is today. 
Poor little critter. Thornley watched the men, in stern silence, until they passed from sight. Then he went back to the easel. Pimpernel, he whispered brokenly. Poor little wildflower. Out of place among us all. He drew a heavy cloth over the radiant face, and, with reverent hand, placed the canvas against the wall in the darkest corner of the room. Late that afternoon, Billy's boat put off for the station in the teeth of a rising gale and amid ominous warnings of thunder. Susan Jane grew more irritable and nervous as the storm rose. She feared storm and lightning. "'Janet, ain't that Billy's sail crossin' the bay?' she said. Janet came to the window. "'Yes, it is,' she faltered. "'And he's going on.' "'Well, what do you suppose?' "'Ain't he got to get back by sundown? "'Twould be a pretty pass if he'd come off at sundown.' "'But he's been off all day, likely as not.' Janet's lips quivered. "'Well, suppose he has. "'Are you going to be one of them tormentin' women "'who is always nagging a man about what he's doin' "'and what he ain't a-doin'? "'Where's David?' "'He's gone up into the light, Susan Jane.' The woman turned anxiously toward the window. "'It's an awful storm rising, Janet. Wind off sea, but changin' every minute. Draw the shade. I'm fearin' the ocean will rise high enough for us to see the breakers over the dunes. I ain't seen the ocean for thirty-odd years, and I ain't going to now.' Her voice rose hysterically like a frightened child's. I just won't see the ocean. Janet pulled the green shade down and hid from her own aching eyes the vanishing sight of Billy's struggling boat. But her loving heart went with it as, spurning the wind and darkness, it made for the dunes and duty. All day, the girl thought, all day and not to let me know. "'Oh, Captain Daddy, what mischief have you been up to?' The quivering smile rose over the hurt, but anxiety lay deep in the troubled heart. A crash of thunder rent the air. A blinding flash of lightning turned the black bay into a molten sea. Janet could see it through the glass of the outer door in the entry. "'Janet!' "'Yes, Susan Jane?' "'Come away from the draft. "'I think you might know how if you got struck by lightning "'I couldn't do a blessed thing but look at you.' "'Janet came into the darkened room. "'Light the lamp,' Susan commanded. "'I ain't going to save oil when I'm in this state. "'Oh, Janet!' "'A splintering crash shook the house. "'Did you ever hear the like?' "'It's pretty bad, Susan Jane.' But the girl was thinking of the little boat struggling in the bay, the strong hand upon the tiller, and the faithful heart, fearless in the midst of danger. "'Janet, since you ain't got no nerves, can you read to me and sort of drown the storm? I'm powerful shaken. I can't run if the house is struck. I can't do nothing but just suffer.' The woman was crying miserably. 
I'll read to you, Susan Jane, and the storm's passing. I can count now. How many? How many, Janet? A blinding flash showed around the green curtain's edge and dimmed the light of the kerosene lamp. One, two, the awful crash stilled the word. Tain't fur enough off, Janet, to trust any. Oh, God, help me! If I could only put my hands over my ears! But the poor helpless hands lay white and shriveled in the woman's lap. Here, Susan Jane, shut your eyes tight and lean your head upon my shoulder. There! Now, when I see the flash, I will cover your ears. That will help. Janet! A mildness stole into the peevish, whining voice. Janet, times is when I see that Billy warn't all wrong in his bringin' of you up. He's sort of left the softness like a baby in you. The hidden eyes did not see the glare, but the thin form quivered as the girl's firm hands were pressed over the sensitive ears. It's kind of muffled-like, panted the woman. In between, Janet, can you say any of it? Your chapter, Susan? Yes, David knows the most of it, and nights, bad nights, he says it when he ain't so plumb sleepy he can't. I'll say what I can, Susan Jane. The gray head nestled close to the strong young shoulder. The nagging woman rested, breathing deep. The fierce storm was rolling away. Darkness was giving place outside to the sunset glow which, during all the terror and gloom, had lain waiting. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Janet's voice repeated the words slowly, tenderly. Their beauty held her fancy. Davy explains that, Susan's muffled word came dully, this way. He says the old happy time, when William Henry and me was young and lovin', you know about that? Yes, Susan Jane. Well, that was the first heaven and earth for us, and it's passed away. The woman was sobbing as a frightened child sobs when fear and danger have passed, and relief has opened the floodgates. I don't know how William Henry is going to bide a new heaven without any sea, Janet. He sought a lot by the sea, always a-going out when it was the wildest and trickiest. He used to say he'd like to go to glory by water, and he did, he did. I wasn't none older than you be, Janet, when he went down, and the cruel waves kept him, kept him forever. There, there, Susan Jane, you know they did not keep the part you loved. That part is safe where there is no more sea. Solemnly the girl spoke as she smoothed the throbbing head. Yes, like as you're not right, Janet. And he'll find another comfort in that heaven. He was the patientest, cheerfulest body, and never a quick word for me. Janet, don't you ever tell, but I'm afraid to see the ocean. I'm afraid, because I'm always a-thinkin' his dead white face might come up to me on a wave. 
Poor Susan Jane, it will never come to harm you. I would not fear. I love the sea. If it had been my William Henry, I should have watched for his face shining in the beautiful curly waves, and had I seen it, I would have stretched out my arms to him, and we would have gone away, to glory, together. Not if the face was a dead face, Janet. A horror rang in the words. Somehow, the girl replied, I could never think it dead if it came that way. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's it, Janet, Susan Jane's voice trailed sleepily. The former things are the things what has the tears and the pains and the hurts. And they must pass away before there can be any kind of a heaven that's worth while. I wonder, drearily, I wonder how it will seem when I ain't got any pains nor any tears and when there ain't any more black nights to think about them in. I'll feel terrible lost just at first. It will be about as hard for me to get used to doing without them as it will for William Henry to do without the sea. I guess we'll all have considerable to do to learn to get along without the former things, whatever they was. Maybe some of the joy will be in learning all over. Janet, I'm powerful sodden with weariness. Weariness is one of the former things. A whimsical humor stirred the words. Sometimes the former things get to be dreadful foolish day after day. Let me carry you to the bedroom, Susan. Janet had assumed this duty in order to spare David the nights he must go up aloft. The thin, light body was no burden to the sturdy girl. There, Susan, and see, the storm is past. The evening glow was shining in the bedroom window. And I will undress you just as easy as easy can be and put you so upon the cool bed. The shower has cleared the air beautifully. Now are you comfortable, Susan Jane? I'm more comfortable than what I've been for a time past. Leave the shade up to the top, Janet. I like to see the gleam of Davy's light when it is dark. I like to think how it helps folks find their way to the harbors where they would be. Janet, that was a terrible queer thing you said about the face in the wave. The girl was folding the daily garments of the tired woman and placing them where David's bungling hands could find them for another day's service. What was that, Susan Jane? She stood in the fair, full light of the parting day. "'About it not being a dead face. "'That's been the horror of it, all these years. "'It has always been a dead and gone face. "'That's why I hated the sea. "'But if—' "'And a radiance spread over the thin, wasted features. "'If it should be that William Henry came back to me, "'alive and smiling as he always did, "'why, like as not, I'd put my arms out.' Then she paused, and the voice broke. 
No, I could not put my arms out. But I could smile like I've most forgotten how to do, and I could go with William Henry anywhere, same as any other lovin' woman. I never thought about his face being alive in the wave. But, do you know, it's a real pleasant idea, that of seeing the sea again, and William Henry a-smilin' and wavin' his arms like he used to when he was bathin'. I declare, it's a real grateful thought. Janet! Yes, Susan? I wish you'd go up into the light after you've cleared the settin' room and tell Davy good night. I forgot to say it when he started up. We'd had some difference about money. Least Davy had. I never had any different idea about it. It's him as changes. Go get the box, Janet and put it under the bed. If it wasn't for me, I guess Davy would know. It was after sunset when Janet, hearing Susan Jane's even breathing, felt herself free. She stretched her arms above her head and so eased the tension. The manner of bearing life's burdens by the people of the dunes was but an acquired talent with her. The first and natural impulse of the girl's nature was to cry out against care and trouble, to make a noise and act. It was second nature only that had taught her to assume silently and bear secretly whatever of unpleasantness life presented. "'Oh, Captain Daddy,' she had once cried to Billy, when something had stirred her childish depths, "'why don't we yell and kick and scare it off?' "'Tain't sensible with them as lives near the sea, Janet,' Billy had calmly returned. "'The sea teaches a powerful pointed lesson, long of them lines. "'Troubles is like the sea. "'When they is the worst, they do all the shoutin' and roarin' themselves, "'and you just might as well pull in your sail and lie low. "'When they is past and the calm sets in, "'tis plain shallowness to use yourself up then.' Folks in cities don't learn this lesson. They ain't got no such teacher, and that's why they wear out sooner and have that unsettled air. They think noise and bustle of their makin' can do away with troubles, but it can't, Janet. So, like as not, the sooner you learn, the better. Janet thought of this hard lesson now as she stretched her strong young body and quelled the rebellious cry upon her lips. "'I'll go up and bid Davy good night,' she whispered half aloud. Then lower, "'Good night, my Cap'n Daddy. "'You've reached the dunes safely, but you'll have to own up some day.' She waved in the direction of the station. "'How dark the water looks,' she suddenly cried. "'Stars in plenty. Where is Davy's light?' White and fear-filled, she sprang toward the stairs and ran lightly upward. Slower she went, after the third landing. Anxiety, added to weariness, stayed the eager feet. If the light were not burning, what then? Just below the lamp and gallery was a tiny room with a table, chair, small stove, and little glass lamp. Here, between the times that David inspected his light, he sat to read or think. 
As Janet reached the place, the darkness was so dense she could see nothing, but with outstretched hands she was feeling her way to the door leading to the steps into the light, when she touched David's gray head as it lay upon his arms folded upon the table. He was breathing deeply and audibly, and the girl's touch did not arouse him. Whatever the matter was with David, Janet's first thought was of his sacred and neglected duty. She ran on and into the lamp. She struck the match and set the blaze to the wick. Then, when it was well lighted, she darted outside and withdrew the cloth. The belated beams shot into the night as if they had gained strength and power from the forced delay. "'God keep the government from knowing,' breathed the girl. "'It was only a little while, and it ought not to count after all the faithful years.' Weak from fear and hurry, Janet retraced her steps to David. He was still sleeping as peacefully as a child. Under his folded arms was an open book. Janet recognized it as one that Mr. Devant had given to David recently, a little book of poems of the sea, poems with a ring and rhythm in them that bore the golden thoughts to Davy's song-touched heart. The man had fallen asleep like a happy boy, forgetting for the first time in his life his duty. Janet lighted the little lamp upon the stand and drew up a stool. The minutes ticked themselves away upon Davy's big, white-faced clock which hung against the wall. Eight, eight-thirty, eight-forty-five. Then David sat up and stared with wide-opened eyes right at Janet. A moment of bewilderment shook his awakening senses. Then he gave his sigh and laugh. "'By gum,' he said. "'Just for an instant I thought I'd forgot my light.' "'It's all right, Davy,' Janet nodded cheerfully. "'Course,' Davy returned the nod. "'Course you don't suppose I'd light my lamp first, do you?' "'Never, Davy.' "'It's bad enough to be napping.' Like as not, the government would turn me out, and with reason, if it caught on to that. I don't know, but I ought to confess. But, Lord, I was that worn, long with Susan Jane's being more ailin' than usual, and the thickness of the air with the shower, that after I saw everything was shipshape, I guess I flopped some. I'll forgive myself this once, but if it happens again, Davy Thomas... You'll write to the government, sure as you're born, and tell em what a blubberhead you are. Janet laughed and stretched her arms out until she clasped David's rough hands. I'll go up and take a look, said the man. Stop till I come down, Janet. I've got something to tell you. I came up to tell you, the girl called after him, that Susan Jane sent good night to you. "'She did that?' Davy paused upon the step, and his face shone in the dull light. Janet nodded. Then Davy went to inspect his lamp. "'But to us he gives the keepin' of the lights along the shore.' Janet smiled as the cheerful words floated back to her. Presently David returned. "'Everything is as it should be,' he chuckled. "'Clear night.' but change in breeze, and the light doing its proper duty. 
Janet, while I slept, I had the darndest dream. I can't get rid of it. I read once how the surest way to get rid of an idea was to dump it on another. Dump away, Davy. It made me feel kind of like I did long ago, and then Susan Jane sendin' that good night up sort of fitted in. Janet, I've been dreamin' about William Henry Jones. Janet nodded. William Henry seemed recently to have assumed shape and form to her. He had been but a name in the past. I saw him a-comin' up the stairs just as plain as day, like he used to come when he came off, and ran up to me if I happened to be haulin' oil up to the balcony or cleanin' the lamp or what not. His face was shinin' same as it used to. By gum, I never see such a face as William Henry had. It always seemed to be lit from inside. I've come for Susie, he said. He was the one as ever called her that, and I ain't heard it since he went down into the sea that mornin' he was blue fishin'. I've come for Susie, and I want to thank ye for carin' for her like what ye have. Them was his words, as true as gospel, and they was terrible comfortin'. For, Janet, I ain't told it to another soul, not even to Billy, but I always loved Susan Jane for myself. When William Henry won her, I wasn't ever going to let on, but when he got drowned and Susan had to hustle to keep life in her body, I just out and begged to take care of her for William Henry. I told that lie, Janet, because I darnst tell her I wanted her for myself. I didn't never care whether she loved me or not, after I knowed she loved William Henry, anyway. But when he went, I wanted to take care of her and keep her from the hardest knocks, and I wanted it for just myself. After a while, I talked her into it. She weren't never strong, and work and grievin' made her an easy mark for sufferin', and so she let me take care of her. But always it has laid heavy on my mind that I hadn't acted just fair to William Henry. And sometimes, when I've been settin' out in the balcony, freshenin' up, I've planned it all out how I'd see him a-comin' over the dune some day, comin' out of the sea what swallowed him, with an awful look of anger on his smiling face, cause I'd got his Susie on false pretenses, as you might say. It's got kind of wearin' on me a late, but, Lord, when I saw William Henry tonight, he was more shinin' and smilin' than ever. And when he thanked me like what he did, I nigh busted with pleasure. And then, as you told me about Susan Jane's good night, I just sent up a prayer out there on the balcony, a prayer of gratefulness for all my blessings. Dreams is queer stuff, Janet. Tain't all as should be counted, but then you don't count all the folks and happenings that pass you in your waking hours. But when a dream or a person or an idea comes along as means a comfort or a strengthener, I take it that it is a sort of duty to clutch it and make it real. When you ain't got nothing better, dreams is powerful uplifting at times. Gum! David drew his shoulders up and plunged his hands in his pockets, as if about to draw comfort from their depths. 
Come, Janet. Tain't often I get duty and pleasure mixed, but you stop here, and after I take another look at the lamp, I'm going to run down and say goodnight to Susan Jane. I know how she's lying awake, thinking and thinking of the past. Dreams don't seem to come much to Susan Jane. David paid his visit to the light, then descended the stairs while Janet took up the book of poems and turned the pages idly. David's dream and all that had happened seemed to still her. How long she sat by the dim lamplight she took no thought to find out. The words of poem after poem passed under her eyes unheedingly. Once she went into the light, saw that all was well, and came back to the book. Presently David emerged from the stairway. Janet was facing him, and the expression of his eyes brought her to her feet and to his side. "'Davy, what is it?' she demanded. "'He has come.' "'Who?' "'William Henry. He's taken her.' "'No, no, Davy, it is not so. She is only asleep.' David shook his head, and his eyes had a dumb agony in them. "'Tain't so, Janet, and she's smiling like she used to. I ain't seen that smile on her face in over thirty year. That's the way she used to look when she heard me coming in the gloaming and thought it was him. No, Janet, she wears William Henry's smile. Janet darted past him, but he stayed her. I want you should sit by her till sun-up. There's a brisk storm settin' in again, and tain't fit for you to go for anyone, and I've got to mind the light. Stay long of her, Janet. I'm glad she ain't got to suffer any more or nothin'. A sob choked the deep voice and seemed to follow the fleeting girl as she ran down the winding stairs. Davy had placed the living-room lamp upon the table by Susan Jane's bed. By its glow, Janet looked upon the woman under the gaudy patchwork quilt. Apparently, she had not moved since Janet had placed her there. Without a struggle or pain, she had gone forth. "'Oh, Susie!' The old forgotten name slipped from the girl's quivering lips. "'Oh, Susie, I just believe you saw his live, shining face on an incoming wave. And when the wave went out, it took you both to glory. But, oh, my poor dear, lonely Davy!' Then the bright head bowed upon the coverlid. "'Susie, oh, Susie!' I am so glad I held you while you were frightened. If I hadn't, I should never have forgiven myself. It was all I could do for Davy and William Henry and you. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline